Hi, I'm Dr. Gary Crotez. Before we start this episode, I'd like to take a minute to say thank you. Thank you to all of you in the 70 countries around the world who are supporting, following, and sharing the Unlock Moment podcast with people who you think would find it useful. We're bringing you some extraordinary guests right now, and it blows me away that we have 20 times as many downloads per day now than we did at the start of this year. If you're not yet following the Unlock Moment, then please do subscribe and you'll never miss an episode. We like to intersperse short micro-learning content between our major interviews so there's something for everyone, no matter whether you've got an hour or just three minutes whilst the kettle boils. Now sit back and enjoy this interview with another world-class coach, the fabulous Whitney Johnson, here on The Unlock Moment. So it's like going from flying a fighter jet to a cargo plane. It felt like a huge step back. It felt like a disruption. I didn't want to do this. But I remember when this opportunity presented itself, I remember having this very clear, so I was sitting in our apartment in the very small family room on 71st and 2nd in Manhattan and having this very clear, and I, I wouldn't describe it as anything other than a spiritual experience of this was going to be a good move for me. I could see in my mind's eye, there were these doors opening up that this was, this was a good move. So even though I was basically being disrupted, did not want to take this opportunity. I could feel inside of me. And like I said, sort of this providential spiritual moment, unlock moment in your vernacular, that this was going to be a, a game changer for me. And in fact, it was. And there was this moment where I realized, wait a second, I'm actually a lot more interested in the momentum of people than I am of stocks. And I remember having that experience and that aha of like, oh, I love this stuff. And one of the things that I learned at the dance studio was that dancers are very, very used to finding their balance. And of course, if you're on balance, you don't move as a dancer. You have to move yourself out of balance. And that starts to move your body weight across the floor. And then effectively you fall over and then stick a leg out and catch your falling weight. And that's how you start to move. And so I've often then, years later, talked to people in coaching about if you don't put yourself out of balance, you won't move. And the art is not in the staying in balance. It's in the regaining of balance once you've knocked yourself off. I think it's so fun that you do ballroom dancing or did. Um, and I love that idea of you have to go out of balance in order to, to regain your balance. So there's this continual dance of disrupting yourself and then coming to stasis and then disrupting yourself. We do need to know how to disrupt ourselves, but we also need to know how to land when we disrupt ourselves. And that's part of the work that I now do. And I think that's part of what we do as coaches is we give people the courage to disrupt themselves, to get out of balance, to be willing to fall. 
but then also have the tools to pick themselves back up and as I would describe it, move, you know, regain momentum along their next S-curve or a mountain as it were. And so I've had a, a few people, including my business partner, call me on this and said, you know, really, is that the lesson you're going to take away with is I fell, so I'm not going to ski anymore. And so I think that's a really important lesson that I am learning right now and, and will take forward when we are disrupted. And we will be if we're willing to get out of balance, going back to your dance metaphor, then we're going to fall. And so what do we do when we fall? And there are some skills of what's your mindset when you do fall? And then what are your skills to, to get back up? And not only get back up, but have the fall mean something. You don't want to go back to who you were before. You want that fall to have meant something, to have learned something in the process so that when you do get back up, you're able to scale your mountain or whatever it is more quickly because of what you learned in the process of, of, that, of that fall. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when that unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Today, it is my great privilege to welcome a world-class coach with a fascinating personal story to the podcast. If you've been listening for a while, you might remember Professor Nathan Furr, who I interviewed back in July last year, talking about the upside of uncertainty. It resonated with me that certain times can be just as much the catalyst for personal and professional change and growth as they can be a source of anxiety and chaos. Ultimately, in times such as these, we simply have to think differently if we want to build the future we want. So today, I bring you perhaps the foremost expert on the subject of disrupting yourself. Whitney Johnson is the CEO of Disruption Advisors, a leadership development company helping you to grow your people to grow your organization. A Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Amazon best-selling author, Whitney was named by Thinkers50 as one of the 10 leading business thinkers in the world. She is a world-class keynote speaker with a quite extraordinary 1.8 million followers on LinkedIn. Her course on fundamentals of entrepreneurship has been viewed more than a million times, and her LinkedIn lives have also had more than a million cumulative views. Whitney is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, as well as the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling books, Smart Growth, Building an A-Team, and the critically acclaimed Disrupt Yourself. Integral to her work is the weekly Disrupt Yourself podcast, which has millions of downloads. I really enjoyed her most recent episode with Maura Aaron's Mealy on leading with anxiety. Do check it out. But for Whitney, it wasn't always about coaching. 
a former music scholar and award-winning Wall Street investment banker, Whitney was the co-founder of the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Harvard Business School's Clayton Christensen, through which they invested in and led the $8 million seed round of South Korea's e-commerce giant Coupang, currently valued at more than $25 billion. I can't wait to hear more about the unlocked moments of remarkable clarity she experienced along this journey. Let's get disrupted. It's one of my favourite sports. Whitney Johnson, it is indeed my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thank you, Dr. Gary. And I love that. Let's get disrupted. I think that's a great way to start this conversation. Lots of people who've worked with me will say to you that this is the right conversation for me to be in. From studying music to growing stocks to growing people, where do we need to start in your journey to learn about the person you've become? I think a a really good place to start is right after I graduated from college. I um, had just gotten married and my husband and I moved to New York. He was getting his PhD in microbiology at Columbia. And I had made the decision that even though I had studied music in school and one presumably does music when one goes to New York, I actually did not want to pursue music. I had done that in part because my mom had wanted me to do that. Now I was married and all grown up, so I was going to do something completely different, but I had no idea what. And um, so we get to New York and it turns out that we need food and we need to eat. And so I do need to go out and get a job, even though I'm absolutely terrified to be in New York. Um, I basically for the first week, I didn't go anywhere by myself. But again, I had to go out and get a job. So um, I started looking and looking for opportunities because I was a music major, because I was a woman, because I didn't have very much confidence. I didn't know anybody because I had grown up on the West Coast of the United States. My first job was as a secretary. I was working as a secretary for a retail stockbroker And um, that was really the best job that I could get. And this was the introduction to Wall Street. And so I would go to work and every day I would sit and, you know, be and do secretarial types of things. But across from me, there was this bullpen of people who were trying to open up accounts who were stockbrokers in training. And they would say things like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that this is a great stock. Um, They would say, throw down your pom-poms and get in the game. And Initially, I'm quite offended by that because I was a cheerleader in high school. But as I heard them say this over and over again, I thought, I need to throw down my pom-poms. And so I started taking um, business courses at night, accounting, finance, economics. Um, And then I had a boss who believed in me and gave me this opportunity to move from being a secretary to an investment banker. So that was a first pivotal moment. And do you want me to tell you what I think the unlock moment was? Or do you want to observe what you think it was? I'd love to hear more about in that journey. When was the point when you knew? And was that different from the moment when you took action? It's a good question. I would say um, that first job, I was in it for about 10 months. So not a long time. But when it's your first job out of college, 10 months seems like an eternity. I think it probably happened pretty quickly. My guess is that I was in this role for three, maybe four months. And, you know, now that I had my bearings and I was meeting people who were in investment banking, I thought, oh, I want to, I want to do that. I had a a really good friend who was um, the secretary to a very senior investment banker. And I thought, 
oh, I want to become an investment banker. So I remember having this thought of, well, why would I make X when I can make 10X? And so basically from the time that I had the idea, I probably enrolled in courses within two to three months. And then, um, you know, 10 months later, I had an opportunity to go work for some brokers at another bank, increase my salary from $21,000 to $25,000, which at that point in time felt like a lot. I mean, it was, it was 20% increase. Um, and so that it, it, I got there and I started taking courses. So I would say it wasn't very long, but when you start something new, whatever you're doing, which is new, feels like a lifetime. I don't know, but I imagine that other people in your shoes might've gone, there's a reason why I can't mm. do that job. So what was the thought process in your head that said, why can't, there, there's no reason why I can't do that? You know, I think uh, upon reflection, I think there are a couple of things. Number one is that my mother um, had always worked. Now, she she was basically, um, or she's still alive, but she was a contemporary of the notorious RBG. So this, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was fighting for all sorts of opportunities that women did not generally have. And so I think that as I watched my mom, she didn't have a lot of opportunity. You know, she worked as a school teacher. She did lots of things that you would expect women of her generation to do. But there's this wonderful quote from Carl Jung that says that one of the greatest influences on a child is the unlived life of a parent. And so I think observing my mom always being in the workforce, having tremendous ambition, having things that she wanted to do. I think that all of that, and now that I was settled, so I think for me too, um, getting married was an important grounding for me, a, a sense of security, a sense of safety. So now that I had this security, this safety in place, I had this necessity of money and putting food on the table. Then all of a sudden I had that my mom, the modeling that she'd done for me, for me from a working standpoint, and then this unlived life, all of those things came together. And even though... I probably would have argued that I wasn't very ambitious. I clearly was. And so I think all of those things came together to create this sense of, I, I, I want something more. You threw down your pom-poms and you moved into the banking side of the business. Were you accepted? No, no, no. Um, yeah, so I, um, I mean, my boss gave me opportunity. I mean, I would not have been there for people who don't know financial services. Uh, you do not move from the secretarial to the professional track. I mean, it does not happen. Even today, it still doesn't really happen. When I tell people, they're like, wow, that's amazing that that happens. So, so certainly my boss gave me that opportunity. Um, but one of the things you will find or did find, and I think still probably is somewhat true, but not to the same extent was you would, they were making this push to have underrepresented groups into the investment banking classes. Um, so women and minorities generally. And so you would get there, but you would move from, you know, an investment banking analyst, maybe to an associate, maybe to a VP, but it was very difficult to continue to crack and, and move up um, to be more senior. And I remember one experience that I had, um, I, this is a little bit later, my boss had been laid off. Um, I was now pregnant with my first child and I really wanted to move into to do something different. I wanted to go into M&A and I mergers and acquisitions. And I remember having conversations with the people in M&A, just, 
you know, I work hard, you know, here's what I've figured out. I mean, I was practically begging them for this role. And they'd say, well, we don't even know if you're going to come back to work after you have your baby. And so there was a lot of bias. Whereas I think if in retrospect, if I had been um, a male uh, who has was showing that kind of grit, that kind of hunger, they're like, let's give them a shot. But there, there wasn't a shot. Um, but fortunately, there was a shot because I had this opportunity to go into equity research, which is actually another unlock moment, maybe if we want to talk about that. Tell me more about that, that step. Yeah. So what happened there is I'm in investment banking and I feel like this is so, I mean, this is the early 90s. And so at that point in time, investment banking was the pinnacle. People, you know, whereas today we talk about venture capital and private equity. Well, at that time, it was it was investment banking when you think about the financial services. And so I felt like here I've, I've made this. This is amazing. Um but as I'm, you know, about to have this baby and, you know, I think they probably would have fired me, but they couldn't because I had good performance reviews and I was about to have a baby. I kept on going to invest in banking, different people inside banking. They're like, no, 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 no. Um, and so lots and lots of doors were closed. And I had this one boss and I still remember him because I'm so grateful for him. His name was Jim Coles. He brokered basically a move for me to move into equity research. Now, I didn't want to go to equity research because um, if you, so it's like going from flying a fighter jet to a cargo plane. It felt like a huge step back. It felt like a disruption. I didn't want to do this. But I remember when this opportunity presented itself, I remember having this very clear, so I was sitting in our apartment, in the very small family room on 71st and 2nd in Manhattan, and having this very clear, and I, I wouldn't describe it as anything other than a spiritual experience of this was going to be a good move for me. I could see in my mind's eye, there were these doors opening up that this was, this was a good move. So even though I was basically being disrupted, did not want to take this opportunity I could feel inside of me, and like I said, sort of this providential spiritual moment, unlock moment in your vernacular, that this was going to be a, a game changer for me. And in fact, it was. It was really um, moving into equity research was really played to my strengths and was very much what I would consider to be a career maker. It's so interesting. And so often on this podcast, when people talk about these moments, they can really place themselves exactly where they were, Michael Leibrandt from Gallup came on and she talked about being in her car in a traffic jam in the rain. And she remembers what was on the bumper of the car in front of her when she had this realization of where she wanted to be going. And there's a chapter of the book I haven't written yet, but I'm thinking about writing, is alone with others. And it's that idea that in that moment, you know, there are there are other people supporting you around you, that, that, that network thing. But in that moment, it's also just about you to make that call. And there's something in that that resonates with what you're saying. It's, it's almost a spiritual experience, actually. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it certainly was. And I, I think, you know, everybody has different views about, about the divine. But for me, it was very much a spiritual experience that gave me this confidence to go down this path that I, I was really reluctant to and to be able to embrace it and go have it be the career maker that in fact it was. 
in my own experience, when I left medical school at the end of my training and decided to go into a completely different career, I had that same sense of intense clarity. There was no doubt that this was the right thing to do. I didn't understand why I felt that way. Years and years later on, when I understood myself better and I'd gone through lots of development and growth and self-reflection, then I understood looking back why it was clear. But in the moment, I just knew it was clear. And sometimes I say to people, you know, if it feels that clear, then don't doubt yourself. You don't need to be able necessarily to describe the why of why you felt that way. If, it's, if you have that clarity, did you know at the time, did you, did you have clarity as to why it was the right decision or you just felt it was right? I felt that it was right, but I, I now know why it was important to do. Um, in investment banking, you're, you're, you're doing deals and you're, you're structuring deals and you're taking companies public or you know, combining companies, um, et cetera. But by going into equity research, what you do when you're on the sell side, and so I was working at Solomon and then at Merrill Lynch, my job was to build a financial model to interview um, the owners of the company, to interview their customers, to do lots of due diligence on this company, and then to have an opinion about whether this company is a buy or a sell. So basically to be very persuasive, you should be buying the stock, it's going to go up for X, Y, or Z reasons, or you should be selling the stocks and it, it's going to go down. And up until that time, and I, I didn't realize this, but I didn't have a voice. I, I was in my early 30s, but I didn't have a voice. And I remember so distinctly because I was about to go public with my first stock recommendation and the stock was up a lot and um, it had great momentum. But I went to my boss and I said, well, how about if we put a neutral on this stock, which it's not a buy, it's not a sell, it's not really a recommendation. It's not very helpful for anybody. And I remember one of my colleagues who, in a very unvarnished way, said to me, Stop being a shrinking violet. And I realized at that moment that here I was in my early 30s. And up until that time, I had never been willing to really state, Here is what I think, here is what I believe. And being an equity analyst forced me to, I had to make a call and I had to recognize that sometimes, you know, by definition, someone's going to agree with you and someone's going to disagree with you when you're making a stock call. And that the only safe harbor was my conviction. And that was such an important lesson because if you look at the work that I do today, people consider me a thought leader. Well, if you're a thought leader, you have to have a thought. You have to have an opinion. You have to be willing to stand for something. And so, so that training, it wasn't about stock picking. It was about learning to have an opinion and to stand behind that opinion and be okay when people disagreed with me. And so that is why in retrospect, at least one of the reasons why that was such an important um, career change for me. And I want people to listen for this thing as they're hearing your story around the clarity, the boldness. And I think about when people make change, often there can be something very specific that they can hook it off, that they can hang it on. 
where you're saying, stop being a shrinking violet or throw down your pom-poms. They're very powerful statements. If something needs to change, don't necessarily know what. I don't necessarily know where it's going, but that clarity. And I'd love to talk a little bit later about, you know, what really drives change and how you can get through a phase of inertia because a lot of people feel stuck. And sometimes these kind of hooks can help you to go, that's what I need to do. That's where I need to go. So how do you move from growing stocks to growing people? Well, I had another epiphany. Um, so I've, I've now at this point been an equity analyst for I'd say seven years and been very successful. I was um, what they call institutional investor ranked. So basically an award-winning stock analyst and not in one category, but in two categories. So I'd gotten very good at, at building these models and, and writing these research reports and picking stocks and being successful in my stock picks. And um, I remember this is now 2003, 2004. So I've been doing this for seven, basically six, seven years. And we're going to do this training for all of my colleagues. Um, so training on how to be an effective analyst. And at the time, uh, American Idol, for those of you in the United States, was at its apex. I had just read this article by the, the wonderful guru, Tom Peters, um, called the, a brand called You. And I found myself completely absorbed by this idea that um, we as equity analysts were a brand um, and that thinking about American Idol, how each of the people on American Idol, they were a brand, you know, the comeback kid, the person that everybody thinks is a joke. And I found myself thinking, well, as equity analysts, we're a brand as well. Maybe you're the forensic analyst. Maybe you're the earnings estimate expert analyst. Maybe you're the person who knows management really well. You have a brand. And what is that brand? And how are you going to leverage that brand? And I was so captivated by these ideas that I spent a ton of time on this training, which I wasn't really being paid to do. I mean, my day job was to pick stocks. And yet I spent all this time on this. And there was this moment where I realized maybe not right then, but over the coming months of, wait a second, I'm actually a lot more interested in the momentum of people than I am of stocks. And so that was, that was one of those things that started to really percolate for me. And, and I didn't act on that piece immediately. Probably it was a year, maybe two years before I acted on that and left Wall Street. At least I thought I left Wall Street. But that was a really important moment of, I, you know, again, I love that you're, you're associating place. I remember we were in our building. It was 1345 Avenue of the Americas. And uh, we were on a very high floor. Maybe it wasn't 1345, but it was on a very, very high floor, high conference room. Um, and I remember having that experience and that aha of like, oh, I love this stuff. I talk with people about the idea that after that moment of clarity, it is forever clear. So a real, you know, lots of people talk about this was an unlock moment, this was an unlock moment, this was an unlock moment. But the ones that are really the unlock moment are the ones that 20 years later, you look back and you, you remember exactly what was happening for you. And they are the moments where before it was fog, then there was that moment. And after that, it was always clear. 
you know, you've gone on this extraordinary journey since then around people. And you can trace it back to that moment in a room, you know, overlooking the skyscrapers of New York. And and that's so powerful because it anchors your journey, you know. Um, lived experiences may be an overused expression, but, but, you know, when you come on to talk about disruption, it's it's throughout your own narrative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's what what I think is fun for me and I think is important, and maybe this is a slight digression, but I remember years ago, I mean, now it's probably been close to two decades when I was deciding that I wanted to do this work of focusing on people and not of, on investments. I had a mentor say to me, actually my mother, who said, you know, if you're going to do this work, then you you really need to walk your talk. And so one of the gifts for me of talking about disruption around personal or personal disruption specifically is that it's really important that I'm continually thinking about how am I disrupting myself? Am I showing up in a way that I'm willing to step back from who I am today to slingshot into who I want to be? And we're talking big D disruption, but also little D disruption, whereas the daily changes that we're willing to make. And was it obvious to you from early in that journey that disruption was the thing? Or did you figure that out over a period of time? Yeah, that was a, another evolution. So so here I am. It's um, around the same time of this epiphany around the, uh, the, the momentum of people about, rather than stocks. I had read um, The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. Um, I'd actually heard him speak at church. Actually, I should back up. I'd heard him speak at church and I was like, completely entranced. This this person is amazing. And then I read The Innovator's Dilemma. And for those of you who aren't familiar with The Innovator's Dilemma, he talks about disruptive innovation. And this is, again, almost 20 years ago. And it was just, this is so interesting. This is so fascinating. And what I loved about it, especially initially, was that I was covering the emerging markets, telecom sector, and realized in Mexico in particular that I, now understanding disruptive innovation, I had this explanatory mechanism for why every single quarter, the numbers that were coming back on wireless penetration were beating my estimates is because they were disrupting. So I was like, wow, this is amazing. I now understand what's going on. But then from there, as I'm reading this book, and this goes to another unlock moment, I have gone to, you know, I've now had this sense of I want to keep growing, I want to keep developing. I go to my manager and say, hey, you know, I've been doing Latin America or emerging markets for about eight years and I, I would really like to try doing something new. I'd like to maybe move into management at some point or focus on the United States. And my boss said to me, <laughs> sitting in their office said, basically, we like you right where you are. So no. <laughs> You know, you just need to keep doing what you're doing. And so I sat with that for a while. I remember combing through the innovator's dilemma. And there was this very specific passage in that book where I remember reading it and having this thought, if I'm going to do what I feel like I'm meant to do or intended to do on this planet, and, and we don't really know, but there's this vague notion of there is something more for us. Um, I'm going to have to disrupt myself. And I realized, oh, disruption isn't just about products and services and companies and countries. It's about people. I can disrupt myself. And so it was, um, to your question earlier of how long from idea to action, I would say it was probably six to nine months, a year at the most, 
between when I had that realization and once I had that aha um, within the year, I had disrupted myself and gone off and and become an entrepreneur and, and left my very wonderful, exciting, high paying job <laughs> on Wall Street to do something completely disruptive and um, and and figure out a new path for myself. It's so interesting. We haven't talked about this, but in my past, alongside my corporate career, I was a professional ballroom dancer with my wife. And we used to... You were? What kind of dance? What kind of dance? We did like ballroom, waltz, foxtrot, quickstep, that kind of dancing. Okay, smooth. The smooth dances. Very similar to that. Yeah. And yeah, we trained and competed in America and Canada, in Russia, all around Europe. And one of the things that I learned at the dance studio was that dancers are very, very used to finding their balance. And of course, if you're on balance, you don't move as a dancer. You have to move yourself out of balance. And that starts to move your body weight across the floor. And then effectively you fall over and then stick a leg out and catch your falling weight. And that's how you start to move. And so I've often then, years later, talked to people in coaching about, you know, if you don't put yourself out of balance, you won't move. And the art is not in the staying in balance. It's in the regaining of balance once you've knocked yourself off. And I feel like there's a resonance in there for what you're talking about in terms of you have to disrupt yourself if you want interesting things to happen. And you've done it time and time again in your own career, but now you're working with people around the world about how to disrupt themselves. Does that resonate with, with you? Yes. And, and side note, I did ballroom dancing in college and I absolutely oh, wow. loved it. Um, I didn't stay with it because I focused on the music, but I, I am, I think it's so fun that you do ballroom dancing or did. Um, and I love that idea of you have to go out of balance in order to, to regain your balance. So there's this continual dance of disrupting yourself and then coming to stasis and then disrupting yourself. And what's interesting um, for anybody who's going to see a video of this conversation is my arm is currently in a sling and it is in a sling because I went skiing last week and I'd had this wonderful day of doing in balance. But then toward the end of the day, I'm on the cat track and I lost my balance and I didn't know how to fall. And so it's very interesting hearing you talk about this and we can tie this in is I've thought to myself, I need to do some practice in falling. Maybe it's martial arts. I don't know what it is, but I need to practice falling so that when I'm in those places where the snow is very, very packed and I do fall, I don't have to put my arm in a sling because I broke or fractured a shoulder bone. And, and so this idea of disruption, we do need to know how to disrupt ourselves, but we also need to know how to land when we disrupt ourselves. Um, and so, and that's part of the work that I now do. And I think that's part of what we do as coaches is we give people the courage to disrupt themselves, to get out of balance, to be willing to fall, but then also have the tools to pick themselves back up. And as I would describe it, move, you know, regain momentum along their next S curve or a mountain as it were. And that's a really interesting analogy about learning to fall. Because what I think about when you say that is you don't exactly know when you fall quite how you're going to land and quite how you're going to save yourself. But it happens, and cats do it better than people. Um, but I think a lot of people are wary of putting themselves into disruption, or wary of putting themselves 
out of balance unless they can paint the exact picture on how it's going to go. What you're describing is something a little bit different, is the confidence that however it happens, you will be okay. Is that different? Do you think from being able to have an exact plan of the next five steps in the process? Uh, you know what, Gary, I, I do think it's different. And I, I'm actually having, a you know, earlier I said I need to walk my, my talk. I'm actually having a little bit of that experience real time because when I fell, my initial, my brain initially went to, well, I guess maybe I shouldn't ski anymore. <laughs> Which if you take that into life, it's like, oh, I fell, I made a mistake or I lost my job or whatever. Maybe I shouldn't work anymore. You look at it and you, you, you listen to it. You think this is absolutely absurd. And so I've had a, a few people, including my business partner, call me on this and said, you know, really, is that the lesson you're going to take away with is I fell, so I'm not going to ski anymore. And so I think that's a really important lesson that I am learning right now and, and will take forward. And I think it's true for all of us is when we are disrupted and we will be, if we're willing to get out of balance, going back to your dance metaphor, then we're going to fall. And so what do we do when we fall? And there are some skills of what's your, what's your mindset when you do fall? And then what are your skills to, to get back up? And, and not only get back up, but have the fall mean something, right? You don't want to go back to who you were before. You want that fall to have meant something, to have learned something in the process so that when you do get back up, you're able to scale your mountain or whatever it is more quickly because of what you learned in the process of, of, that, of that fall. I love that. And I don't ski or ice skate very well, but I'm mindful that both sports are inherently standing on a very slippery surface. So to go, I'm not going to go skiing because I might fall over. It's kind of the nature of the game that that might happen. But it plays to another thing that I know you said in the past, which is about the link between growth and discomfort. So you're currently recovering from, from a shoulder injury, you know, and there's discomfort in that, but you're also learning. So what do you say to people about the journey of going through that process of growth? Yeah. So one of the things that I, I especially love about our work is, so I, I talked a few minutes ago about this idea of I'm more interested in the momentum of people than I am of stocks. And then I took this theory of disruptive innovation and applied it to people. And so I'm sure you've noticed there's a pattern that I take management theories and apply them to the individual because I believe that the fundamental unit of growth is the individual. Well, there's a third framework that I found myself applying to individuals, which is the S-curve. And many people are familiar with the S-curve. Um, it's sometimes called the growth curve. It's sometimes called the change curve. Um, but typically, when you look at the sociologist Everett Rogers, he was using it in the context of how do groups of people change over time? And for me, when I saw this, and we were applying this at the Disruptive Innovation Fund that I had co-founded with Clay Christensen, the aha that I had was we can use this to understand how individuals change. And so what I do and the way I think about this, and I'm even thinking about this right now, let me explain it and then I'll, I'll talk through it, is that whenever you start something new, you're at the launch point of a curve. There's this flat place where um, growth feels very slow. In fact, it's very fast. Mathematically, it is very fast. But because you can't see any evidence of the growth, it feels very slow and your dopamine 
is dropping because you're making lots of predictions about what it's going to take to move up that curve and they're inaccurate. So it drops. So, so whenever you start something new, you have this experience of this feels awkward and uncomfortable and I feel gangly and unsure and I feel impatient like an imposter. So there's all these experiences, these emotional experiences that make it really hard to start something new. So you start, but to persist. But then what happens is as you put in the effort and you decide that in fact, oh yeah, it makes sense. I want to stay here. I want to be on this curve. You tip into the sweet spot that Malcolm Gladwell popularized. And this is the place where your predictions are increasingly accurate. And so your dopamine, um, the chemical messenger of delight, it starts to spike. You have these emotional upside surprises. And so here growth is fast. It feels fast and just feels exhilarating. So you understand emotionally how it's going to feel. And then you get to the top of the curve. And this is the place that we call mastery. And it's not you're the world's foremost expert on everything, but it's this place where you did what you set out to do. And because you're not learning at the same pace that you once were, you're not getting a lot of dopamine. So now you have what I call a dilemma. Um, A dilemma means, um, (laughs) you know what a dilemma means, meaning you're at this place where you're master of all that you survey. You're really good at what you're doing, but because your brain needs more dopamine, you have this feeling um, too, that maybe there's more for you to do on this planet. You now could stay here, but if you do stay here, your plateau is going to become a precipice. And so this is where you need to disrupt yourself. And I'm betting Gary, if we were to analyze your decision to leave being a medical doctor to go pursue something else. That's exactly what happened is that you were very good as a doctor, but you felt like there was something more for you to do. And so if you didn't want to die inside a little bit, you had to disrupt yourself and move to a new curve. And so now that you understand that, and I'm using that even right now to talk myself through the fact of I've had this energy, I put energy, ooh, I like that Freudian slip. I had this injury. I now have to decide what am I going to do with this? I'm on a new curve. How am I going to navigate this, but understand that right now I'm going to have days where I feel scared. I feel fearful. I feel overwhelmed. I don't know how to put my clothes on because my, my arm doesn't work. All these experiences of being new, but it helps me recognize, oh, situation normal. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just doing something new. I think that's really important to talk about because you know, the whole sort of success dilemma, you know, you see other people doing these extraordinary things and you think, well, I can't do that. I don't feel like that. In reality, change is a scary thing. Disruption is a scary thing. Everybody feels anxiety. Everybody feels imposter syndrome where they're at the top of that kind of curve. And I know for a lot of people, I think that part of their inertia is believing, well, I know they can do it. It doesn't mean I can do it. So how do you how do you help people to think, no, I can do that myself? Well, that's part of the reason why we're coaches, right? Um, is that we get to have that wonderful honor of helping people believe that they can. Um, a couple of things that I find are helpful for me is number one is to recognize the importance and the power of our mindset. Um, I talk about, um, you know, I had this wonderful mentor uh, for a few years. He passed away last year of Bob Proctor. Um, he, uh, you know him perhaps from the secret, but just this, the power of our minds, um, that whatever we, if we believe something, our, our subconscious doesn't know the difference between the truth and a lie. And so if we tell ourselves that we can do something, 
or we can't do something, then our rest of our brain will figure out how to make sure that we can or cannot do that thing. And so um, I, I think that's the first place that I start is to say, even if I don't believe I can do it yet, do I believe that I could believe that I could do it? I think that's the first first step for all of us. Um, and, and, and also, do I want to do it? Because you might say, well, you know, I believe that I could believe that I could play cricket, for example, I was just in India for a wedding. So that's kind of on my brain. Um, but I don't really want to. So then the question is, do I believe that I can believe that I can do it? Is there a necessity there? Do I want to do it? If all of those pieces are in place, then that's going to be a really important powering mechanism and give you that energy to to be willing to stay on that curve and to see if you can move up the curve. The second thing that I do is um, I think a lot about the loss aversion theory. And so loss aversion theory says that we are more motivated by what we lose than by what we gain. In fact, 2.2 times more. And so sometimes when we're thinking about doing something new, we try to envision all of the good things that will happen if we do that new thing. I find that that sometimes isn't as helpful and loss aversion theory proves this out as saying to myself, what bad thing will happen if I try to stay here? So I said earlier, you know, I wanted to stay on the top of the mountain. I don't want to do anything new. I like the status quo. I'm not even really like it, but it's comfortable. Um, but the plateau will become a precipice because you can get pushed off. And so if you can say to yourself, okay, what bad thing could happen to me if I stay here? that can also be a motivating force. So, so understanding kind of flipping loss aversion theory on its head, using it in your favor, using the S curve as a way to frame, to have this container for what's happening. And then recognizing those two things I find, oh, two, and then the third one is believe that you can believe that you can do it. Those are all helpful in helping people propel themselves forward. Certainly they're helpful in helping me move forward. So I find that it's helpful for others as well. In the midst of that point of change, in the midst of that S-curve journey, I guess it can be uncomfortable in that moment. And how do you how do you get to the stable plateau versus drop into some kind of chaotic place? So you go, you know, I was instability. Now I've pushed myself out of balance, and now I feel out of control. How do you how do you keep on a path that does end up in a newly controlled, stable place? Uh, this is a great question. Yeah. So I, I would say the first thing is, is when you're at the launch point, that's the flat part at the beginning of the curve is just to recognize that it's going to be messy for a while. Um, it, it just, it is by definition messy. You don't know. And so be willing to recognize that the uncertainty is part of the process. I think that's actually very helpful because we'd like to close loops. And if we, if we aren't willing to leave that loop open and have it be uncertainty, we'll sometimes make decisions prematurely. I think that's where quarter life and midlife crises come from as people aren't willing to be in that messy place for longer. Um, then once you do that, you're going you're gonna to collect the data. You're going to decide, does it make sense for me to be on this curve? I mean, some S curves aren't the right curves. Uh, we go back to disruption theory where you know, when you're willing to be a disruptor, your odds of success are six times higher, but that's still 6% to 36%. So lots of things you try aren't going to be right. Like I tried flamenco dancing and I took two lessons. I was like, ah, it's not really for me. And I, I moved on. So, so recognize there are going to be many things you're going to try and you're not going to continue with them. And so allow it to be messy. Um, allow yourself to try things and, and stop things. But if you do like it, also be willing to persist. 
once you do get into that sweet spot where you're thinking, okay, growth's starting to feel fast and it is fast. Okay, this feels good. This feels exhilarating. One of the things that I find is really important is that when you're in that sweet spot, because you're increasingly competent, if you go to self-determination theory, you're feeling in control, you're feeling related, you're feeling connected to all that you're doing, you're also getting a lot more opportunities, which means that when you're in that sweet spot, if you want to get, if you want to, get to the top of that curve, it's important to learn how to say no, <laughs> to, um, to be willing to say, um, you know what, I'm not going to be able to do that. I need to continue this and, and to stay that course and not get derailed by other opportunities. That I think is a really critical piece in order for you to continue that process of metamorphosis to go from this thing that you do to this thing that you are to get to mastery. Going back to your ballroom dance or even medical school, right? You know, second, third year, you're like, oh, I'm pretty good at this. Well, you can't drop out of medical school because you won't be an MD. Or with your dancing, you're like, oh, I'm pretty good at this. Maybe there's, you know, other opportunities to do other things on the weekend. People want to spend more time with you because you're a famous ballroom dancer. And you're like, no, I need to go practice because I have this other medal that I want to get. Etc. So I, I'm putting words in your mouth, Gary. Um, you can you can disagree with me if you want, but um, I'm these these are my suppositions. I was talking to Marshall Goldsmith on 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 this podcast, and he was talking about in his philosophy around the earned life that you have to let go of what's going to happen coming out of the journey that you're on, and just focus in the moment on what you're doing right now. And I think that in my experience, I really resonate with that the idea that if you're chasing a future goal, then you're quite likely to be disappointed. And when you get there, there'll be another one. There'll be another one. So ultimately, you've got to say, am I happy in this moment, making the choices I'm making, doing the things I'm doing? And that really resonates. Last question. If you were talking with one of my listeners who's just feeling stuck, something needs to change, but I don't know what, what's one thing that somebody could come away from this podcast and go, I could go and try that thing that might move me forward a little bit. What would you say to somebody who feels in that sort of space? So I would say a few things. First of all, pay attention. Um, if there's something that you're feeling stuck around, it might be that you're at the top of a curve and it's time for you to do something new. Um, it also might be that you're trying something new and it's not working. And so you want to pay attention to that as well. Um, so that would be the first thing. The second thing is that really consider this S curve as a way for you to map the feelings that you're going to have, that you're going to feel overwhelmed when you start something new or impatient or like an imposter, you're going to feel exhilarated in the middle. And in master, you're going to have that feeling of, I feel like there's something more. And so it's really important to pay attention to that. And then once you do that and you start doing these new things, sometimes you're going to fall down. You might have your arm in a sling, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't disrupt yourself. It just means that you're on the right path for you so that you can, at the end of your life, at the end of your, the S curve of your life, say to yourself, you know what? I, in Marshall's words, I earned this life. I worked hard. I did things that were interesting. I, um, I, I showed up to myself and I showed up to the people around me. And I think the last thing I would say, and I've been thinking about this a lot is just to give yourself empathy, to be kind. I actually have on my phone a picture of myself from when I was eight years old to remind myself that when um, I, I mess up and I want to start berating myself for messing up, I look at that eight-year-old girl and say, would I berate her? And the answer is, no, I would not. 
and to just be uh, kind because when you are willing to go off balance, um, you are going to fall. And so you want to be kind to yourself because it will be a lot easier. Give yourself a hand and get back up. And then the more you can do that, the faster you can move through this S curve of learning, the faster you can iterate, the more you're going to feel the sense of, of exhilaration and joy and happiness in your life because you're truly showing up to yourself. And because you're showing up to yourself, you can show up to the people that you love and, and everyone around you. That's such good advice. I love it. How can people find out more about you and the work that you do, Whitney? I think the fastest way to find out more about me, actually, since people are listening to your podcast, you can go to my podcast. It's the Disrupt Yourself. So that's very easy to do. And then also, um, if you go to uh, thedisruptionadvisors.com, um, you can see more of the work that we do there, uh, whether it's um, workshops or coaching or um, certification for our work. Fantastic. And we'll put the links in the show notes. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For world-class speaker, podcaster, and coach Whitney Johnson, it was when she realized she didn't have to follow the designated path and was empowered to carve out her own career journey in the intensely competitive world of investment banking, and then later turning it into the growth of people. That journey has enabled her to go on and touch millions of people around the world with a message of inspiration and activation. Whitney, it has been such a great privilege. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Unlock Moment. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. This has been the Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.